Well, good evening, Mr. Mulligan. How are you, sir? Good evening, Mr. Featherston Hall. Well, we're very uh, formal this evening, aren't we? Very formal, very formal. What's indeed. that all about? <laughs> Keeping very well. Keeping very well, thanks. Good, I'm just very business-minded today, a lot of work stuff. So I'll have to park that now. Park that and, now uh, because we're, we're getting... We're, we're, we're now we're, in the historian zone. We're in the historian zone. And this evening, we have a very special guest who's going to join us on the historians. And we're looking forward to this one, aren't we? Do yeah, Tarek Hussain. Tarek Hussain. Uh, not technically history, but it is. I look, like, looked into this because it, it, it's a travel book, essentially. Ooh, I love um, but it's covering a very important part of history. So I, I would certainly class it as being well up there. So we'll have plenty to talk about. And, and this is the type of history, really, that we're trying to get people interested in, get out there, explore. Explore the world. So what's the name of the book then, Derek? Minarets in the Mountains. Just looking at it here, beautiful title. Beautiful. Sounds nice, doesn't it? It, do, it does sound nice. Well, let's ask the man himself what it's all about. Good evening, Tarek. Welcome to the Hipstorian, sir. Good evening, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here, you know. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with what you were saying about it's not quite history. It's sneaky history, if you Excellent. will. Excellent. Love you it. You know, you just kind of sneak it in, under the radar. People think they're reading a nice travel narrative all about beaches and best bars and lo and behold they come away knowing so much more than they ever thought they would <laughs> wow well that's so that's that's what we're talking about here a travel guide a bit of history thrown in this yeah. is this is right up our alley Derek isn't it oh for sure yeah absolutely 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 so you'll have to introduce our listeners to what brought you to to write this book how you set up the uh, the 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 travel itinerary and you did use the writings of 17th century guide by the name of Evlia Chelebi. Yes, indeed. Yeah, no, you, you've nailed that. You've done that very well. Most well done, Derek. I mean, I'm sure I'm getting it wrong as well. Um, so Evlia Chelebi is indeed the 17th century Ottoman traveller. And um, had you said the kind of subtitle to the book, it might have been made a bit more clear as well because of course I'm claiming to take part in a journey into Muslim Europe which of course for many people is a kind of oxymoron if you will it doesn't really exist does it what, what is Muslim Europe there's no Muslim Europe and all of those kind of things and really and truly if there is a, um, a mission statement for this book it's to make glaringly apparent that Europe has a very, very flourishing indigenous Muslim presence, mm. a flourishing indigenous Muslim culture, one that is at least six centuries old in the case of the places that I had um, wander around in this book with my family. But certainly it goes back far beyond that um, and goes all the way back, of course, to the Iberian Peninsula where the presence first began. But that's not what this book is about, although it alludes to it. And mm. so it's really... The, the, the point of the journey was, before it was a book, it was a journey for me and my family who are Muslims of Europe. Um, we wanted to go and get connect with, understand and get to know this wonderful living history and heritage and these, these people and their cultures that I just felt like had been kept from us. In, in For whatever reason, I, I, I'm often in talks, I, I talk about the kind of conscious 
writing out of history of European history of some of this um, culture um, and and that is definitely partly to blame so it's kind of going on this wonderful journey taking Elia Chelebi with me who traveled through much of the same lands when it was the most Muslim it's ever been because it was that the absolute zenith of the Ottoman Empire and so having him with us we have this wonderful set of lens where he's able to tell me all the stuff that used to be there that may have been consciously or unconsciously eradicated, deliberately erased. You know, we know that communism was very anti-religious, so that played a big part. But actually, Elia Chelebi and the historical writers that I kind of meet along the way and use along the way show that in some cases it was a, it's been a long-term systematic effort. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the Iberian Peninsula there, Tarek, the history that is still so apparent there, and anywhere you travel through Spain with the Moors, but it's it's I kind of tend to agree with you in the sense that it's almost not been eradicated because it's still there, but the memory of it is almost eradicated. It's almost like they were the enemy, yes, and we defeated yes. them. We we pushed. Yeah. When I say we, I mean the Christian. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. At the time. Not me personally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, so then, I don't know. You may be some kind of strange I, time traveler that we're aware of. <laughs> I wear a red cross and go around in, a, in some chain mail in the back garden. Absolutely. That's what the name is given out about. But that memory, it's almost like I've been, obviously, we've traveled to Spain quite a bit. And it's almost, if you go on a guided tour, it's almost like as a, as a by the by that they'll Indeed. mention. And you know it, it, it's Muslim because, well, the big giveaway, the minarets that you mentioned in the title of your book, Absolutely. but also the beautiful tile work. Absolutely. The Arabic been... inscriptions. The They're Arabic all still there in Spain. You know? yes. and, and what's what's really fascinating about the Spanish experience is, of course, that Spain was Muslim for more than any other culture. It, it's, it's, it was Muslim far longer than it was Castilian. You know, this is seven centuries, 700 years odd, nearly 800, actually. I, I need to get my maths right because I'm dealing with so many presences across um, Europe. So yeah. nearly 800 years, that's 780 years that Spain was Muslim. This, this was, it left an indelible mark, one that is irreversible. And the main reason, like often people will say to me, so Tariq, you know, you, you, you're kind of unearthing all this wonderful history. You're mm. making us aware of all this great stuff. Why the hell didn't we know about it before? Yeah. What's going on here? And, and there are lots of answers, but the main answer, you've hit the nail right on the head. In the end, the winners write history. And the winners over here in the European Peninsula, so to speak, were the Christians traditionally. So they won that particular battle. Now, if you go over to the Middle East, the Muslims won, which is why trying to find Christian history from afar in the Middle East, which I've tried to do as a, as a um, guidebook writer um, for on the Middle East, I, um, you know, and I've written various articles where, where I try and explore the minority heritage there. You, you think there's none of it until you get there. Ah. And then you're like, whoa, nobody Look told me that there's, you know, Jordanian Muslims worshipping at the same kind of shrine as, as, as the local Muslims. Nobody told me this stuff. So yeah. it's, it's the same everywhere. It's the winners that get to write the popular history. True. And, and that's what we're trying to address here. Because what happens over time, and you both know these as hipstorians, that's, that's your official title, right? Because mm -hmm. you're not mm -hmm. historians, you're hipstorians, right? Correct, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? You, know this as, as, you know this as hipstorians. Um, popular history is not only written by the winners, but it starts to be accepted as objective. 
And that's the problem. So mm. when, when I'm talking to even very well-read people, they're absolutely astonished because mm. they haven't been there yet, especially the ones that haven't been there. The ones that have been there will be like, yes, I, yes, I do recall seeing lots of minarets in the mountains. And yes, I do recall seeing lots of mosques. But the ones who haven't are like, my God, I had no idea Albania was so Muslim. And it's because they've come to accept the popular consensus. Right, which is the fact that they were, for want of a better phrase, kicked out of Europe. Yeah. Um, but one in, in what yeah. we would term the, the Middle East. Yes. And that's why when you go there to the Middle East, you travel to the, the Holy Land, quote Absolutely. unquote, if, if that's the proper phrase. You see all these fantastic crusader castles yes. and all the remains from the, the yes. Franks that were there from all the way from Constantinople as it was, the Byzantine Empire, and all the way down. But you have to go and search for it, right, Tarek? You, oh, yeah. you have to oh, know yeah. what you're, you have to absolutely know what you're looking for. Yes. Or else you're just not yes. going to see it. You're going to pass you it You have to on, do the right? work. You, you have, have to, to do the work. work. Because yeah. the, the, the popular narratives are obviously, like I say, written by the people who are there now and the people who have been there most recently in history, and they want to tell their story. They're not, interested in t- they're not interested in telling the story of the people they beat, especially if they see those people as villains, which yes. is what, what, our, what our forefathers did. They saw each other as villains in many occasions, sadly, and that's why they didn't want to write about those other people. That's right, and they're depicted as such, right? Like the Crusaders would have depicted them as the barbarous hordes, and then the word, obviously, the, that the Muslims used, used for the Christian armies were infidel. Yes. Right? Which, you know, what is the proper definition of that word, actually? Just Well, it just to... literally it means uh, um, a non-believer. A non-believer, yeah. A disbeliever. But of mm. course, as with many words, it's not necessarily about the literal meaning. It's about what it comes to. It's the meanings it adopts along the way, the connotations it has. And mm. it means far more than just somebody who is not a Muslim. It, you know, it goes beyond that. Um, mm. But yeah, it's it's really what one of the. But I, I should also point out that there, there are other factors here that yeah. that are at play with this particular region that I've visited, of course, um, the Western Balkans, because mm. it, it's whilst whilst of course um, the winners wrote the history and everything else. One of the other things that I found, which was very very curious, um, and and whenever I present it to 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 people, it suddenly dawns on them that this is actually the case: is that we do not call this part of um, Europe, Europe. We call it Eastern Europe. True. We qualify it. Okay. Now mm-hmm. we all know that when you start to put a kind of um, prefix to something, you're distancing it from the thing that you it was originally a part of. You're basically mm-hmm. saying there's Europe proper, and then there's Eastern Europe. It's over there. It's in the east. And this this term I just used a little while ago, connotations. When we think of the connotations of the East historically from the West, it was at best exotic mm. and at worst barbaric. Okay, so this kind of historic adoption of a of a prefix to describe this region for me goes hand in hand with the fact that most recently it was almost entirely Muslim. So it's wrapped up in mm. what I call European Islamophobia. Mm. So this Islamophobia is what led to the region being distanced in this way. And even mm. today, when we speak about even a non-Muslim country as Poland, we're calling it Eastern Europe because it's all been lumped into that kind of distant barbaric. And whether, you, whether mm. you're talking about the Islamic presence or otherwise, if you read about historic um, travel literature about these places, if you read between the lines, the subtleties and the nuance, that they are really describing this place as being almost like that feared dark continent Africa on their doorstep. 
This is yeah. the way it's described in, in, in a lot of popular literature back in the day. And that's, of course, over time, that becomes normalised. Mm. And we have even modern writers, sadly, repeating these tropes without realising it. Mm. And this is what I call our travel, I'm sorry, our Western literary heritage when it comes to travel, our travel literary heritage. And it can be problematic because, of course, it was all, in the English language, it was generally written through the same narrow lens. Gotcha. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of the history in, in the East, I suppose the East, it was the Eastern Roman Empire. So when, when Rome essentially split up and we had the thousand years of Byzantium, yeah. it then actually became the front lines of Christianity versus yeah. Islam. And it was the fall of Constantinople in Indeed. 1453, Sultan Mehmed II. And he actually, I, I do recall, shed a tear at the beauty of the Hagia Sophia when he, when he walked into and conquered Istanbul. Constantinople as it, as it was but that's when really you would have had the, the the Ottoman Empire would have then spread right into what was Byzantium and yes. this is where a lot of the heritage that you're talking about yes. and what you describe is is, is, is coming from and um, where what so what's give us give us an idea of the map that you you drew for yourself before setting yes. up so it was it was really guided by you could call like the, our our kind of guiding compass the thread that ran through the middle were three countries in particular because those three countries might well be called European Muslim countries and this is because um, all three of them just like the country of my birth Bangladesh Bangladesh is is constitutionally a secular country but the demographic religious demographic is so heavily weighted towards Muslims that people often refer to it as a Muslim country. So in that same way, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Albania and Kosovo, sorry, Kosovo, where it's over 95% Muslim, could be regarded as, quote unquote, European Muslim countries, which again sounds like an oxymoron and, and a strange thing to say. And when I first mentioned that to people that, oh, I traveled through some Muslim countries in Europe, they, they, you know, you can imagine the reactions I get. So that's what kind of... Um, helped with the narrative thread. And of course, Evlia comes into it because Evlia tells me where else he's been and what kind of things he's seen. And so we used that, um, starting in Sarajevo, we then went through Serbia, which allowed us to then go into Kosovo, come out of Kosovo, back um, into North Macedonia, and then we went into Albania, Montenegro, and back to Bosnia and Herzegovina. And those six countries, we stuck very closely to the areas where I had either Elia Chelebi or, or other um, travellers, Muslim and otherwise, telling me about potentially large communities of indigenous Muslims of the region. And, and that's another thing I think it's worth addressing whilst we, for, for our listeners, because I often get this thing about how can Muslims be indigenous to Europe? And then I ask them, how can Christians be indigenous to Europe? How can Jews be indigenous to Europe? Because guess what? All three religions came from the same place. So nobody's religion is indigenous here. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the people who practice it. So an Albanian is indigenous to Europe, a Bosnian is indigenous to Europe, and so is a, someone from Kosovo, North Macedonia, etc. That's why they're called indigenous Muslims of Europe, okay? Whereas some, somebody like myself of South Asian descent, I completely accept that I'm the result of immigration. I don't claim to be indigenous. And this is why they're so important, because their identity is and of Europe proper. As in white, Western 
Christian. Absolutely. Blonde haired, blue eyed. Blonde haired, blue eyed, as you, you mentioned. Know? But you, um, you, you yeah. met these people on your travels. Absolutely. <laughs> now, first of all, I, I am a little bit disappointed that I have never been to these countries. I consider myself well traveled. Do, do you know how many people tell me that, Derek? <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> Probably. No. Probably Derek's down there. See, this is what happens when you have the same. This name is what happens just for our listeners. Yeah, we, it's it's like a controlling bid by Derek to take over the historians, but we're resisting over here, as did the Christians yes. in Spain around <laughs> the, the conquest. Neil piped his corner. So yes. I, I've never been to those countries, considering myself well traveled. So I'm a little mm. bit disappointed to say I've no. I, I can't. I I I'd love to share some st- travel stories with you, but I mean you're the guest, so you share them with us. What yep. are these countries like? And also, I want to just get back to the dynamic traveling with your family as well, just for the uh, for our listeners. You didn't embark on on one of these midlife crises where I got to get a motorbike and grow my hair. I got to go to travel parts of the world these traveled. You dragged them along with you. How did that work out? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, this was one of many journeys they'd been on with me, um, and and us collectively. You know, this is something that my wife happily indulges me in because she acknowledges that whilst we we as a family want to go and do these holidays as muslims we might not want to go and visit the church that's been talked about in the guidebook we might not necessarily want to go and visit that flashy new glass building if there is heritage that is important to us that the guidebooks aren't talking about actually that just becomes a part of our itinerary that's just a normal thing we're doing now Mm. that's that's not in in the beginning it felt abnormal because we were going off script Everyone else was going to those the, the expected places. Like, if, for example, if I was to come to London, where I actually live, he might go to St Paul's, but I'm going down to Woking to see the country's first purpose-built mosque. Right. You know, that's what I'm doing because that's important to my family. So yeah. actually, we've been doing this for years, and the, mm. and the story starts two years prior to the journey in Bulgaria, where where mm. we're doing this, where mm. we're we're in the middle of the countryside. We're actually having just a nice eco farm slow living holiday and it just so happens that as we're driving down from romania having spent some time exploring islamic heritage there we i keep seeing these these minarets everywhere what on earth is going on here this is bulgaria we're in the heart of bulgaria this shouldn't be here as far as i'm concerned i'm ashamed to say it like yourself neil i didn't know enough about this stuff Mm. and then the local guide i mean sorry not local guide our host happened to be an archaeologist so he takes me off to this tomb and he says, look, if you think this is interesting, wait till I take you to this place. So he takes me off to this tomb and it's called the Demir Baba Teki. And it's an Ottoman era tomb. I walk into this space and I'm blown away. OK, first of all, I look up and I see these kind of mystical. I recognize them as Islamic and Arabic kind of inscriptions, but I have no way of decoding them. I can read some of the more obvious stuff like the name of God and so on. And, and, and the name of the prophet, but the rest is deliberately kind of encoded because it's it belongs to a distinct sect that I know nothing about, a distinct European Muslim sect. But then the tomb itself is split almost exactly down the middle, half full of Christian iconography, the other half full of Islamic iconography. It's a shared space. These things apparently don't exist in the Balkans because, of course, the Muslims and Christians are killing each other all the time. Mm. That's the Mm. popular line. Mm. And I walk into this space and the people that that are visiting, they could have been Christian, they could have been Muslim. I would never have known. But what was really, really beautiful about it was that here was a place that they were sharing without fighting, without killing each other, without doing any of this. And it had survived all the traumas that I'd heard. 
The Muslims thought it was Demir Baba, who was this mystical saint from the Bektashi sect, which is a, 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 a kind of Balkan sect in this day and age, began in Central Asia, but because of the Ottomans, it, it became more popular there. And then the, the, the Christians, as they often do, thought it was St. George. <laughs> and there's this wonderful image, which I actually showed to the Royal Geographical Society last night, inside the actual tomb museum. They have this wonderful image of Demir Baba with his turban on, looking every bit the Muslim mystic, on horseback slaying dragons <laughs> so you can see like that wonderful pluralism it, it just it just blew me away and then before you knew it i was off through the countryside the kids were uh, tomorrow and the kids were sometimes at home sometimes they were with me we went off and found these beautiful mosques and found these beautiful people and then i started to read the history which was actually sitting on their bookshelf the, this was a very well-read couple and i began to realize this was all disappearing it was also disappearing because of the conscious effort in some cases, um, and, and in some cases because it was being neglected by non-Muslims and Muslims who, who, who were also oblivious to much of this. And that's when I felt a sense of urgency, which is what prompted the book. Very good. No, okay. I get it. Yeah, I absolutely get it. But I wonder, right, Tarek, deep down, was there some sort of search for meaning for yourself and, and by extension for your family? Did you, did you even know were you before you embarked on this journey that you you were seeking something was it to, to, something to do with identity something to do with religion? Oh, absolutely. So oh, without did, a shadow of a doubt. But did you know, you know that before you set off, or did that? Yeah, just I mean, I'm, unfold? I'm, a, I'm a student of cultural studies. I'm a student of Said. I'm a student of Stuart Hall. I'm a student of Bell Hook. You know, I've been searching for identity my whole life. You know, Said Edward Said's writings on exile. It's brought it home to me as 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 the as an immigrant. I'm not even the son of an immigrant necessarily. I was born in Bangladesh, so as an immigrant, I know that I'm forever in exile. I know, which is what Said says, and I know that I'm for, forever going to be searching for belonging, mm -hmm. and and that's that's clearly what part of this is. But also as a parent, I wanted to make that search easier for my children. I I. In my book, I speak about the challenges I faced as, as a non-white person going, growing up in the East End of London, the racism and everything else. Mm -hmm. And then I talk about how that was almost transplanted by the Islamophobia that came post 9-11. It was felt the same, but now it was my religion. And I knew my children were going to face the same thing. And one of the things about uh, modern Islamophobia is this accusation that Islam is a foreign presence. So I decided that I was going to use my travels to, to prove, to disprove that, to mm. disprove that firstly to myself and, and now obviously being privileged enough to have written a book that has done very well and, and is getting a lot of recognition, I intend to do it through my work as well. Mm. Because of course, as we mentioned earlier, yeah, the evidence is still in the Iberian Peninsula. Muslims have been here from the beginning, from the beginning of Islam. So the, 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 the Muslims of Europe that are indigenous are very important in this discussion for that very reason. This isn't a dead Islamic presence. It's living. And that's why this was the book I wrote first. I always thought I was gonna write about the Iberian Peninsula because that's where I fell in love with, with um, Europe's Islamic heritage. And so did our King. If you, if you read what King Charles go, goes and says about Islam and Spain, it's honestly, it's, it's no secret. The, the, the people know about it. It's just, it's just the, the, the consensus and the popular narratives of history when it comes to to this idea of Europe it, it, it's just impossible to penetrate it because it's been canonized over so much time 
Exactly. Derek, this taps into what we were talking about recently, about history being rewritten and rediscovered. And yeah. that's the beautiful uh, element of, of history and why we're so interested in history is that you have this, the narrative, you have the, the the unfolding of the story. It's written down in books and then that's it. And then you have people come along like Tariff here and just gets those books and just shakes out all the dusts and shakes them upside down, spins it around. And then we get a whole new story. It's, it's, it's about it's, having the right vehicle, isn't it? It's having the right vehicle to sell it to the masses. And that's that's what you've done. Because, like, in my estimation, Tarek, you're ever the historian. <laughs> you ain't just a travel writer. Not from uh, the, way, the way you're speaking about this stuff. So uh, you found you found another niche for yourself. But uh, I, I think the travel the travel log is a fantastic way of, of, of bringing people from the outside in, getting them to appreciate. What's ultimately, it's all our heritage. Absolutely. And this is this is so important. Derek. I'm so glad you made that point, because often people will say, oh, you're, you're banging on about Islamic heritage of Europe. I said, look, one day I hope I don't have to call it that. Mm. One day I'm just going to call it the European heritage, just in the mm. same way we're getting closer to accepting our Judaic heritage in Europe, which for a long time, of course, we were repulsed by. It's only in the last... 30, 40 years that we've really started to acknowledge it, embrace it, and talk about the great Jewish history of this of this great continent. I hope one day that's the same for, for our Muslim heritage. You know, that mosque down in Woking, it's your mosque as well, Derek. It's 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 all our mosques. It's if it's our if it's British, it's ours as as Brits or or whatever. And if it's if it's something in Europe, then it's ours. It's just that we've been made to feel so uncomfortable about it. Yeah. Yeah. So uncomfortable about it. And, and you know, it's one of the things I always say to people, I'm trying to make familiar what has been consciously made unfamiliar to you. Yeah, this is really important stuff. And I wonder, I might be a little bit left field here, but I wonder, is it like an American, right? Because <laughs> Americans are fat. We speak to Amer a lot of Americans on this show, Tarek, who, who almost inevitably the first thing they'll say to us, oh, I'm half, half Irish. They come across as almost more Irish than us <laughs> because they're so fascinated and, and also seeking meaning and identity but here's the thing they've no shame about it whatsoever because they know their history is more recent right yeah. so they've no shame they could be from alabama wisconsin they've no shame to find out if they're one third irish mm. english scottish and they go and seek that out some of them do get the opportunity to travel it's obviously harder more expensive for them to travel over to europe but the ones that do that's what they're doing is exactly yeah. what you're doing except ours is history is a bit more convoluted a bit more complicated but well, I it's it's great you talk about the American one because I've got a brilliant story about how great. after I did my first um, radio production for the World Service, we went out to the US because um, through some um, exploration of Islamic heritage in the Baltic, I came up on the possibility that the oldest surviving mosque continuously in use in the US might be in Brooklyn and it might have been built by white Muslims of the Baltic. So mm. the BBC got very excited because it was just around the time a certain businessman was running for a presidency and, and calling Muslims all sorts up there. So it was topical, you know. <laughs> and so they, they commissioned it. We went out there. So we turn up into this mosque, this gorgeous building, this church that had been converted into a, a, a mosque that looks almost identical to the little Baltic mosques that we'd left behind out in Lithuania, La um, I'm sorry, Belarus um, and Poland. And these, these mosques are so indigenously of the Baltic. They look like little Baltic sauna houses with triangulated roofs and then this ornate onion dome on the top, like the ones you see in Eastern Orthodox churches. So this is very much of the space. And they've, built, they've kind of converted the church in Brooklyn to a similar place. 
we go and find out that the actual descendants of the founders still own it. It's not very active anymore, but they see it as a cultural space. And most of the people who have flown, gone to other places across the U.S. still come back and want to have their funeral um, put through this. We, we go and visit the, the cemeteries. And, and, and this journey, of I, I realized very quickly, because when they, when they pull out the chalkboard that used to be used by her grandfather to teach Arabic, there is still Arabic in chalk written on it. So I realized this isn't just the journey I'm on. We actually took these people on this journey. Mm. And what happens after we leave? And, 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 you know, I was very, very fortunate. Amazing program. Ends up winning an award and everything. They then started a, a journey of discovery as a community. Two years later, they make a trip back to the old country for the first time in their lives. And they start finding old relatives in Belarus. Wow. They start finding mosques they've never seen. That's amazing. Honestly. What's Absolutely. the name of that program, actually? What's the name of that program? So it's it's um it's called Mosques of America, mm -hmm. and it's part one and part two. BBC World Service still still up there. You can still Super. listen to it. I mean, I don't know how long the BBC's budget will allow that, but mm. you should get in there quick. <laughs> Absolutely, we will yeah. do straight after this show, indeed. <laughs> Derek, just getting just getting back then to what Derek mentioned there, as much as the history, like it is travel writing as well, though, right? Like, I mean, essentially, oh. you're on the road, and as Derek said, it's just a great vehicle how to tell a story so getting just back to the travel mode what are these countries like to travel in and where was your favorite part? right yeah i mean that's that's always the most awful question but um <laughs> yeah in terms of traveling from a practical purpose we yeah. talk we are talking about former communist bloc of course mm -hmm. still in a state of recovery you, you can wander through sarajevo uh, and you'll see the recovery but you'll also see the bullet holes on the wall still the, the, the genocides are still fresh in people's memories. Yeah. So everywhere you're traveling, especially around Bosnia, for example, you'll see, um, you know, monuments near the killing fields. Right. And and the, the um, you do have to be quite independent in your capacity to travel or you have to take up organized tours because the infrastructure isn't there. There is public transport, but we, we never even attempted that because we had two young girls with us. We were a family that wanted to maximize our six weeks in the um, Western Balkans. And we were, we were, I was on a particular mission. I needed a vehicle that mm. would go where I needed to go. And so we, we commandeered a, a tiny little um, white vehicle and we took that out of Sarajevo and we drove through every single country I've named. Um, we found in some of them, the infrastructure was even worse. So in parts of Albania, they, they, they have a wonderful highway, but then when you go off grid or you go to some of the smaller rural places, even the Albanians will tell you, you know, the cars take an absolute battering, you know, and it's very difficult to get around. And, and this is, of course, about the inability of, of, of local governance to, to get their acts together, in, in many cases, the corruption and everything. And, and a lot of these things are still there. But in the main, you're traveling through mountainous country. Balkans comes from the Turkish for mountain. Okay, so this whole region is mountainous, which is why the title is so apt. And, and every Turk that reads the title really gets it, because I'm actually saying minarets in the Balkans to them. So, you know, a lot, a lot of them really get it and, and see the poetic kind of title. And so you're, you're, you're making these wonderful drives up, sometimes winding up into glorious mountains, almost alpine. Skiing is very popular in these countries. Uh, a, a lot of the Middle Eastern travelers that make it to places like Bosnia in particular, they absolutely love it because it's a cheaper option to Switzerland, plus it's Muslim friendly. Mm. You've got all the halal food, you've got mosques everywhere, and even better than that, you've got 
young Bosnians who tend to be fluent in Arabic because they've resurrected their Islamic educational infrastructure. So you've mm. got that going on as well. But you've got also some of the most warmest people that you yeah. are likely to meet on the continent, the least pretentious. They they will they will they will starve to feed you if they can, <laughs> and and we just felt so welcomed everywhere we went. I w I should throw in a caveat there that mm. we are not the most visibly Muslim um, family in that. And and let's be honest, the the most blunt visibility of a Muslim tends to be a big beard on the man's man's case, which of course. Derek is very That's, fashionably. I was just right going to say he he would, he would go down well in the Balkans. Absolutely, and and in mm. and of course in the woman's case it's normally a headscarf. And my wife, although she's a convert, she she doesn't wear the headscarf. So we're not the most visible. And I've had conversations with with um, Muslims who were like, okay, so you went to these great Muslim places. What about the places that weren't Muslim that you went to? How will I feel there? Mm. And and I, I have to confess to them that. I don't actually know because I, it's not a lived experience for me. But what I do know is these people are used to living with Muslims. Yeah. And so actually, when you go to somewhere like North Macedonia, which in, in the popular mindset is not a Muslim country, you'll be absolutely astonished how Muslim it looks. You go to Skopje and it might as well be a Muslim Rome in that you trip over Islamic heritage. It looks like a, a forgotten Ottoman um, town. In fact, I haven't been to a place that looks more Ottoman outside of Turkey. In, in my, this is Skopje. And then you go to this one corner where it's actually trying to be a Muslim Athens, because of course they built all those statues of, of, of the Hellenic culture in an attempt, uh, from a funny perspective, in an attempt to try and um, claim some kind of um, strong connection to ancient Macedon. But on a more sinister level for me, given the thesis that I present in, through my work, this is a classic modern example of the de-Islamization of a place, of the inability to be comfortable with the Islamic identity of a place. In other words, to try and erase the Islamic and replace it with some kind of Hellenic culture, which of course is, is much more palatable to the Western part of Europe. And, and, and whilst we're talking about geography, we should point out that isn't it interesting that all the countries I go to are popularly known as Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. except for the one that's furthest east, which is Greece. Right. Because, of course, we like Aristotle. We want Plato yeah. and we want Socrates because they, they helped build what we call the foundations of Western European identity. So we won't distance them with that prefix. That's yeah, really interesting. So it's, more, it's more cultural uh, as, oh, a, as opposed to uh, geographical. Then. Geographical, yeah. That's, that's insane. And, and the and natural beauty... When you put it in that context, you really get to yeah, appreciate yeah. what all this is Absolutely. about. I, I should mention the natural beauty as well, chaps. You know, we've got these glorious blue lakes, stunning, fast-flowing rivers, gorgeous forests and woodlands, and it really is one of those places, if you haven't been to, when you go there, you, you're asking yourself, why didn't I come here sooner? That's the, what's, I would that's say what's going to the only um, downside, I would say, is is the, the the lack of infrastructure. If you want to sort of independently travel, that that's probably my only reservation. And, as and you said, border obstacles. Sorry, border obstacles. Yeah, of course. We were traveling in the summer of Brexit when we were still EU members, and and that naturally opened a lot more doors than I, I, I suspect our passport will now. I don't know what kind of agreements we have with them. I haven't looked into it recently. But what I do know is that when when when, when I was traveling there with the EU passport, I didn't have to pre-plan any of my border entries back then. Um, that may have changed, 
So your listeners should look into it because, of course, things have changed dramatically. But the only place that was problematic, not problematic, that you had to think about is entering Kosovo. Because, of course, Kosovo has this precarious position as a country in that not everybody recognizes it as a country. Um, most notoriously, its neighbor, Serbia. And so, you know, we were trying to, we, we wanted to enter Kosovo from Serbia. So we had this scenario. Firstly, our car company wouldn't um, insure the car for Kosovo. They said, you can take it in, but no insurance covers Kosovo because of this awful diplomatic situation. So they said, you have to buy, you have to buy insurance at the border. And then it turned into this kind of weird twilight zone where we're pulling up on the border and, and buying something really suspect looking from a guy that seems to be sitting in a garden shed and, and nobody really knows if this paper means anything nobody really knows what i'm going to do if i do have a crash there um but because of all this kind of uncertainty and the fact that if you enter from serbia you can't leave kosovo without going back into serbia Otherwise, you're leaving Serbia illegally. All of this really worried me a lot. And mm. I was traveling with my family. So I, I had to think carefully about, am I actually going to be endangering them? And then, of course, I, I realized that this was, this was um, just a load of nonsense, in my opinion. This was just a, a political mess that, that two, people, two, two countries that clearly can't get see, see eye to eye. And that's what's led to this horrific situation where, where Kosovo as a country is suffering dramatically, um, can't access funds, can't have the infrastructure the rest of Europe has, you know, the banks, the, none of it. None of it is available there. Um, and it's awful. It's absolutely awful. And, and then we walked into Kosovo and we were like, oh, my God, what, what a beautiful country. Right. What, what amazing Islamic heritage there was. And I had to go to Kosovo because Kosovo is where um, the, the Ottoman story um, within, within Europe proper, so to speak, start. It's, it's the Battle of Kosovo in 1389 when Sultan Murad I um, leads an, an, an Ottoman contingent who are often forgotten, who are supported by quite a few minor aggrieved Serbian princes. <laughs> who who decide to take arms against the Serbian prince they're not happy with, who I, if I recall correctly, was Prince Lazar. So so they go to war. Nowadays it's just painted as Christianity versus Islam. It really wasn't that. Okay, it was it was a, it was much more than that. And in the end, of course, um, the Ottomans win. Sultan Murad dies on the battlefield, as many early um, Ottoman um, sultans did, because they considered themselves as Ghazi, which means a warrior of God. So you had to go to battle. It was the honorable thing. And that's why many early Ottoman sultans died on the battlefield, including Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. And so when they die, normally the place they die is where they will put, create their first tomb. And it's not an empty tomb. It, it's the tomb where the organs are buried, because of course they take out the organs in order to transport the body. And so all that stuff inside, they, they give it a, they also give it a, a kind of a necessary burial. And that leads to two kind of, um, and tombs and that. So I had to go to Kosovo because this this is where it started. I love it, brilliant. I love it. Just layers yeah. and layers of history. And is, is there any, like I'm a real battlefield enthusiast, Tarek. Um, honestly, <laughs> <laughs> all over the Western Front and what are there any battlefields that you can go where these epic events took place in this part of the world that you can see or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm not the same. I'm not huge on battlefields. So so I go there purely because it's it's a significant moment. So the biggest one is the Battle of Kosovo right there. And of yeah. course, um, then there were individual battles fought with local governors, local, um, sorry, local rulers, local princes all over the Balkans. So if you map that narrative 
of the Ottomans slowly marching through, you will encounter battlefield after battlefield. Whether or not they're marked and, mm. and who's commemorating them, I, I couldn't say because I didn't actively seek those out. The one I needed to get to was Murad's tomb. Not just because Murad was buried there, but also because it's a beautiful tomb and it's one that Elia Chelebi visits. And he, you know, I wanted to see it the way he did. And I did because... His is the earliest account that's still around, one of the earliest accounts of what the tomb looked like when it was renovated under during his time, because he, he's traveling with this governor called Melik Pasha, who's his maternal uncle. Um, and him and Melik Pasha turn up. This is one of the their greatest sultans, a godlike figure almost in many ways. And, and they find this tomb in a sorry state. You know, there's human feces everywhere and Evlia and and Evlia is just kind of sitting there just saying to, to the Sultan, how can we let the, to the um, Pasha, how can we let this happen? And the Pasha's not saying much until until to be crass, a piece of shit kind of hits his robe, his beautiful flowing robe. And that's it. He flies off the handle, loses it. And he's like, right, let's get some of these local infidels and let's pay them to repair this place. Because the reason it falls into disrepair is at this point, it's not a very Muslim area. And, and the locals aren't Muslim, so they don't care for this tomb. They're just using it as a latrine. And so that's when it gets renovated. And of course, Evlia being very much an administrator as well, and an auditor, documents what it looks like. And, and this is what most um, refurbishments and most kind of renovations, they go back to that source. So I was looking at the tomb as though Evlia Chelebi had been in there only days before, which was magical, of course. Absolutely. That's good enough for me. I'm sold. I'm there. Yeah. What do you think, Derek? Is that our next trip on the hip story? Yeah, yeah. But best, uh, I mean, the thing about it is I have yet to uh, convince my family to come on a historical jaunt <laughs> with me. We can't, so, um, we can't even get yeah. them to come to Belfast with us, with us <laughs> which is like two, two hours two hours away. the road. I think my poor family were inflicted one time too many uh, with, with, with an information board on some windswept <laughs> hills somewhere when they should have been at the swimming pool. So I probably ruined it. The, the key, so chat, the key is, yeah. right, you've got to sandwich it between stuff. All right, so it's got to be a beach somewhere. Yeah. All right, you, you sneak in the really boring cemetery <laughs> or the really boring tomb, and then you throw an ice cream on top of it. And then you sneak something else in. <laughs> that's, so you that's, that's what you've got to do. You so know, you've got to get the formula right. You probably could have covered that journey in three weeks rather than the six weeks that it actually did take, Tarek, if you were just able to go off yeah. your own bat. But it probably wouldn't have been half as much fun. Oh, um, absolutely. absolutely. Get out there, folks. Again, minarets in the mountains, a journey into Muslim Europe, which is the most, well, it's the important subtitle that we didn't mention at the very start because you will unearth stuff. You don't have to go there, by the way. I mean, if you're lucky enough, let's go. Yeah. But it, it, just by reading it alone, isn't it, Derek? It's just it'll just bring you on a on a on a trip through a part of the yeah. World. It's 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 our shared heritage. It's really important. Mm. The stuff you describe, like I'm I'm lucky enough. I'm sitting in my office here in Windy Arbor, Dublin. Um, just across the road, practically, is one of the, the biggest mosques in in Ireland. And we go to eat there all the time. The welcome's always there. So I, I, I have a good idea what you're talking about on a local level. But uh, it is, yeah, it's all our heritage. Yeah, you've got, the, you've got the wonderful Chester Beatty around the corner. Probably That's the correct. greatest yeah. collections mm -hmm. of Qurans on the planet. <laughs> you got Absolutely mind-blowing stuff. 
yeah, yeah. No, this is yeah. more stuff we need we, we need to experience isn't it for sure right on our doorstep as well but this this book would help us if if to just travel a little bit further as well Tara, thank you so much for your time this evening what a great it's joy been a pleasure gentlemen and an absolute yeah I hope you enjoyed it. Like, we do get a lot of good feedback on the historians, but we like to do something a little bit different here. You know, not too much dusty history, but there's nothing wrong <laughs> with that either. Um, but love a bit of travel thrown in as well. So, salam alaikum. Thank you so well, much. Thank you so much for Thank your you. time. Thank you. Take care. And uh, hopefully we'll meet you in the real world sometime. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you, Tarek. Good evening. Good evening. Ah, what a great story. What a great interview. Love that one. I had a feeling. I just had a feeling about uh, that one when I spotted him and I went, yeah, okay, he'll, he'll be good. A, a little bit different, as you say, but right up her alley as well. Loved a bit of travel. Yeah. yeah. So long, you know, during all the lockdowns that we missed out on so many travel experiences. Loved to just even talk about it, even through reading it and talking to the authors about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it gets us to think, it gets us to challenge what it means to be European. Mm. And, um, that's interesting. Well, when you look at it historically, you go all the way back, you, you, you kind of go, wow, yeah, you see how this is. This, it's essentially the Western Roman Empire versus the Eastern, but the Western was blown away by the barbarian hordes from the North. And then they kind of try and reclaim it. Uh, and I think that's what they're trying to do over in the US of A as well. Yeah, it's funny, uh, all these tropes and how we hang on to these ideas. Yeah. Um, where the truth is rather work. different. It's important stuff, Harry dressed it up nicely and nice, readable travelogue, but it's, what he's actually digging deep into there is really important stuff. Yeah. This, is, this is who and what we are, as he said, but he, he just done it in a nice, a nice, a nice, easy way. Rather yeah, than, than bashing us in the head actually, with some heavy... He's not a historian. He's the first absolute non-historian we've interviewed on the show. And really? he, like, okay. like, you know, to me, that's pure history. You well, know, right there. Yeah. 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 Just like us then. Yeah, um, that's it. Just enjoying it and just doing it for the crack, as we do on the well, historian. We'll sign off as every we began Take it easy, Mr. Federson Hall, and take it easy, listeners. We'll catch you again next time. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Thanks, folks. Good night.